Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Ravlick and thank you for joining me for this podcast. One of the things that we've observed over the past few months during the pandemic is that there's been a lot of focus on the media. Irrespective of whether it's government-owned or a commercial-run operation, the media has been under an enormous amount of stress. Resources have been stretched. Uh, reporters have been uh, working to all hours looking at issues related to the pandemic and even before the pandemic, floods in parts of Australia, uh, the bushfires and a range of other issues, not to mention the standard coverage of politics, legal system and social issues that's per- that, that you normally see across commercial and government-owned outlets. One of the things the pandemic has brought out, and it continues to be of relevant uh, discussion, is what is the future of various media outlets, how do media outlets get, uh, get their funding, how media outlets secure their audience, and how the culture of the media has shifted in recent years. Joining me today is... Uh, someone who's had a bit to say about the media in the past few past few years is Chris Berg. He's a, he's an, a senior research fellow with uh, the um, blockchain project at the Melbourne Institute of Technology, but he's also been involved in writing up analysis, most notably on why the ABC ought to be sold, privatised. And, and we'll be talking about the media and other, other issues uh, with Chris today. Chris... Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, one absolute pleasure. Now, most people would identify you with a handful of public um, outlets where you've commented on issues. Uh, They won't understand your background, and it's important to set context. Um, If you had to, if you had to describe your career on the back of a yellow post-it note, what would it look like? <laughs> sure. So um, I was a, a policy director, research analyst, in fact, a magazine editor with the Institute of Public Affairs uh, for 13 years. Um, uh, I, I um, did a whole bunch of things there. So the Institute of Public Affairs, as many of your listeners will know, is a free market think tank based in Melbourne. I tended to focus on um, the relationship between regulation technological change and civil liberties, particularly free speech as one of the core civil liberties. So I was involved in a lot of um, uh, political disputes and battles around freedom of speech and regulation and privacy for um, my time at the IPA. Um, I got my PhD or went off and got a PhD at RMIT and um, decided I'd like to make a change uh, in my career, moved into academia, got a job at RMIT. And now actually I focus on uh, blockchain technology. I've done a whole bunch of other things around media and regulation and so forth. But most of what I do now is um, research into how we regulate, um, uh, how we, the public policy impacts, the um, corporate use of new frontier technologies like blockchain. Yeah, your PhD is a topic of interest for me. Um, what did you... Uh, what did you actually poke about and look at? Yeah, sure. So um, my PhD was on the, the <laughs> I'll give you the boring title. So it's on the political economy of 
prudential regulation in Australian history in the banking sector. Now, um, this sounds rather dull and technical, but it really came from a, uh, a question that I had, which is that we've always had this idea in our sort of popular understanding of the history of Australian politics and the Australian economy that we deregulated in the 1980s. So Bob Hawke and Paul Keating deregulated the economy in the 1980s um, and, and turned us from a sort of social democratic system as it was in Australia in the mid-century to the sort of neoliberal system that, we, uh, that we're told we have today. But at the same time, all my research into um, regulation, the effect of regulation on the economy, suggested that there was a lot more regulation now than there ever had been, certainly even more than there was in the 1970s, 1960s, and certainly since the 1980s. So the question I had was, well, if we say that there was deregulation in the 1980s, why are we more regulated now than um, it seemed like we were before that? Now, the key um, industry that we talk about when we talk about the deregulation movement of the 1980s is the banking sector. So I thought, okay, well, I better look at the banking sector. I better look at the things that are very particular to the banking sector. Um, uh, and and uh, to cut a long story short, my research was trying to trace really the history of regulation in Australia through this one particular sector so that we can understand much better the political economy that we now live in. What, Why is there so much regulation? What does the state do? How does the state think about what it does? Um, and and what are the you know what are the costs and benefits of, um, uh, of of regulating so much as we do at the moment? Now I did write a book on the Banking Royal Commission called Vulture oh. City, which some sure. of my some of my uh, listeners will know, and it's also available on Booktopia for those who don't. Um, and if you need it, if you're still in isolation, you'd need to read. I'd, I'd recommend it, but. The question of deregulation in the banking sector needs, is also coupled with, um, over time, Chris, an increase in the awareness of how customers interact with banks mm. and how the whole profit notion of the way banks operate and how they sell and all that sort of stuff. So on the one hand, you deregulate a market. On the other hand, you start to uh, put that marketplace in a in a kind of a vice and and put this you know turn the handle and put the squeeze on it because there's behavior that uh, a parliament believes in achieving its consensus on legislation needs to be stopped yeah look it, uh, it's an interesting question um uh and the I think what has happened is I was looking at particular a particular type of regulation, which is prudential regulation, the regulation that the government imposes to prevent um, uh, banks from from being insolvent, to ensure that they can keep um, uh, they can keep making loans, they can keep um, uh, they can return deposits to people yep. who want their deposits returned. Now, the reason, of course, I was looking at that is because when I was writing my thesis, we were just off the back of the global financial crisis. And that's that's the interesting, um, that was what, what it was interesting at the time. I think what we've seen now, though, post-Royal Commission, and, and the Royal Commission directed our attention to this, is the very um, important and complex interactions between um, financial advice and consumer protection 
that that ended up being the um, regulatory focus of the government, and that is now that that wasn't new to the Royal Commission, right? So all the way back to say HIH, we had all these conversations about well, well what what are the consumer protections if a um, a, a semi bank or a, a um, or an insurance firm or um, something that people have invested a lot of money in, what if they collapse? Um, uh, and so that 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 is that has drawn our attention, but it's an interesting change because it's only really in the last decade and a half that the attention of the regulatory system in the banking and financial sector has been directed to consumer protection rather than how can we keep these banks afloat. Well, the other there's something else that's been going on since about the mid '90s as well. Um, I remember one of the first stories I ever tackled when I. Uh, accidentally entered into the world of accounting and that became my subject matter expertise. That's a whole other story. Uh, but it was ASIC's Good Advice Report in released in November of 1995 where there was a turf war between accountants and financial planners about who should be permitted to provide what was then um, referred to as incidental advice. Mm. Now, that was that's a turf war that continues to this day at various at various levels. But at that point in time, uh, you had financial planners calling the accountants dabblers, and you had all sorts of stuff going on. I reported it back then. It makes me feel old even reflecting on it, Chris. But <laughs> but the consumer stuff was operating. Even back then, all you've seen over over the past uh, couple of decades, um, twenty six years in my case, if you if you map it from ninety five, um, what you've seen is a gradual increase in consumer protection law in order to prevent the uh, what we what would we call um, the excesses of behaviour, you know, selling people things they don't need to get a commission, whether it be a trailing commission or a soft commission, whatever it happens to be. Um, and we we still haven't ended that discussion. But that's enough, that, that, in some respects, leads us into and segues us into the whole area of media, media regulation, and where the media heads... Um, one of the one of the problems that we have looking at that is it's a vast area, Chris. Where do you see the landscape at the moment uh, from a commercial standpoint? Uh, look, it is a vast landscape, um, and obviously we spend a lot of time talking about the newspaper industry, which has gone through the most um, heavy or or, or um, intense restructures of the last decade. But the media is a um, really vast network of industries um, and often when I think it's useful when we talk about the media to bring in the wide range of ways that people get either entertainment or news content from newspapers to magazines to podcasts to YouTube to that large network of industries um, often I, I've been involved in um, debates about media policy for, for nearly two decades now and I remember in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, having these discussions about the future reshaping of, of 
the media. And the argument that I made then, and we were talking about things like um, restrictions on mergers and the um, uh, two out of three rules and, and all these um, uh, now relatively archaic structures that the government put on, um, regulatory structures the government put on the media networks and media um, industry. And, and I was arguing at that stage in the mid-2000s that um, all our, you know, Channel 7 and Channel 9, the Fairfax papers, the News Limited papers, they are all now competing in an environment against YouTube. They are competing in an environment um, against uh, uh, the, these these uh, services that I could actually only speculate would shortly exist, like, like Netflix. I think Netflix at that stage was only in the US and it was still sending you mail out DVDs. But now we live in that environment, right? We live in an environment where consumers are actually um, very comfortable mapping between totally different um, uh, totally different media. They're very comfortable watching something on YouTube. They're very comfortable watching um, the ABC, whether it's on iView or on their television. In fact, it's often hard to distinguish between a TV and a computer. All these smart televisions are really just Android devices that can do that run applications. One of those applications is free-to-air broadcasting. Um, we're now in such a converged media environment that I think it's really hard for us who've grown up having these discussions about the difference between newspapers and radio and television to come to terms with the fact that the generations that we're now thinking about don't, don't distinguish. They don't distinguish between those that, that competitive environment anymore. That, that's the way I start this conversation. Um, and I think I think everybody starts this now, but trust me, fifteen, nearly twenty years ago, when I was first having these debates, that definitely wasn't wasn't the context. Why do you think it wasn't the context that they wanted to debate? Because is it because there was a clear cost to them if things went a particular way, uh, if a new model was adopted? Look, I, I think that the. I mean, these were policy debates about um, media mergers, about um, monopoly dominance, the um, claim that, you know, if, if a TV station was able to build, buy a newspaper, that would be a um, unjustifiable domination of the media landscape by that, that new merged company. Um, now, that sounds quite quaint in retrospect, given that these companies are really struggling to survive, but it is the was the dominant regulatory frame, the dominant way that policymakers and even people in the industry had to think about the media sector for the better part of um, sixty years, ever since you know the, the the modern Australian media sector came into being. We've had these debates for so long about you know the the fears that we had in the. 1970s or 1960s onwards about foreign ownership of domestic um, media entities, the fears that we had about the dominance of um, one big media company. Now, I know a lot of people still are concerned about, um, uh, about say, News Limited, um, News Limited's role in the Australian media landscape, but I'll submit to really any listeners that that is so far from a accurate diagnosis of the media landscape today, that it that it, it's just it, it just doesn't make any sense. When we talk about the media, we are talking about this huge network of large companies, small companies, independent operators like yourself, Tom, 
who are providing us independent, sometimes corporate, just a huge variety of content from a huge variety of perspectives. And I think that's great. And it's really, really exciting. It obviously brings some challenges and I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, but overall, there's just more content now from more variety of perspectives available to all of us all the time um, on our phones instantaneously. It's, it's, it's a really exciting media landscape. Um, if I can, yeah, and there are, you, you've raised a multitude of issues there that can be <laughs> unpicked and you can, this could run for a fortnight and we wouldn't finish. But there's a, one of the issues you raised is the issue of the sort of the, the Murdoch and the Nine um, equation and how assessing it just by looking at those two organisations is not the right diagnosis. Would you care to expand a bit more on that? Well, yeah. So it's not the right diagnosis if you're still thinking of the media sector in the way that dominated the 20th century thought about media and media competition. And that was the idea that you had monopolistic owners, you had media moguls, um, who were able to control the coverage, who were able to dominate public discussion, who were able to wield excessive political power because of that monopoly that they might have or oligopoly or what, whatever it is. And I think that the last couple of years have demonstrated, last decade has demonstrated really clear, A, that a media monopoly is not like it used to be, so you might dominate, you might have a lot of newspapers, but a lot most people don't get their media from the newspapers. So you do not have the monopoly over public attention that you might have had, even if you're um, just as dominant in that particular niche of the market. I mean, it's also the case that there's really no reason to believe that our political culture is excessively dominated by some single homogenous view. And I think the um, waves of populist discontent, of polarization, you might not be happy with those political outcomes, but they demonstrate pretty clearly that no one figure, no one ideology has a dominant position in our political discourse. Now, if we're no longer worried about a single vision having a dominant political um, uh, dominance over our political discourse, then I think that that just sort of all the concerns that we've had in the 20th century about media moguls sort of just drop away. It's just a different environment. Now, there are other concerns. There are concerns that perhaps some people are not getting very broad-based views because they'll what, what, what media scholars call the, the balkanization on, on social media. They'll only be following people they agree with. Now, these are interesting things and we can discuss them, but those are different and new views. If you think back just a decade, how different the media landscape is to today, how different the public policy questions are to today, it would shock the you from 10 years ago the, the me from 10 years ago that we were talking about the role that Facebook plays in the American election, but that's the environment we're in now. 
what changes do you think the social media has made to the way in which uh, news organisations operate? Because the one thing I have noticed, and this can be a good and a bad thing, is that journalists are no longer figures of mystique, right? <laughs> um, they actually occupy social media. Uh, they actually rip into each other. They actually needle each other. Now, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing is for others to assess. Um, I simply note that uh, the way in which the media does operate doesn't always accord with the way in which the accounting uh, accounting profession and accounting professionals operate. For example, given the code, given the accountant's code of ethics requires you to not disparage. Uh, other other professionals in the profession. Yeah, well, I mean, those changes have been a long time coming, though. Um, so the gradual change over the last couple of decades, now completely done, of the rise of bylines, for instance, so the um, news media reports are more clearly associated with particular individual journalists. That is a change from the sort of mid-20th century um, idea of objective, independent view from nowhere journalism. So, so that has been changing. Um, I, I was I, I was involved in social media and Twitter um, from some of the earlier days, since uh, two thousand and eight or something like that, when um, the when social media A was a lot nicer, but B you would see there was a small community of mainly journalists just talking amongst themselves. Um, social media has some really interesting consequences for people who aren't very good at controlling themselves and you're right it has exposed a lot of um very uh thin skins it's it's exposed a lot of um uh deep anxieties within lots of professions but journalism is one of the main ones because these are the people who professionally write um uh, and they tend to have lots of political opinions and a lot of them are very willing to share it journalism is not uh, the population, as um, many people rightly point out, but it is an interesting window into the uh, what you'd call the public intellectuals of the population. It's a fair smattering of the most vocal voices, and um, to see them go each other is not always very endearing. Well, it's certainly something that uh, I've tended to um, flinch at when I've seen <laughs> it happen, because it verges on being unprofessional. Um, in, in the old school meaning of, of you know, being a professional, and whether that's changed in the context of social media where eyeballs and, 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 and put-downs and seeking of coverage of things um, is somewhat... It's still a question in the back of my mind. I mean, I still struggle with it, Chris. <laughs> well, well, it is, but it's also had some interesting other implications. So um, there's a ethos in a lot of journalism, even just sort of commentary, that you'll you'll write your content and you sort of file and forget. So you've, you've written it, it's now rock solid, you've sent it to your editor. And then... Um, and then it'll publish. It'll be published. And I, I, I was a newspaper columnist for about ten years with the Sunday Age and, and the Drum. And I would file on a Thursday, for example, and it would be published on a Sunday. 
And so it, you file and forget. That environment no longer exists. Now the people who are writing for a newspaper um, will file and within a couple of minutes or an hour or two hours or even just a, 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 within a very short space of time, their content will be online and they'll get instant feedback from hundreds of thousands of people on the internet who pick away at it. Um, uh, I mean, partly because, you know, it might not be very good, but they'll they'll make comments often for entertainment. They'll attack the journalist. Um, and that comes as a shock, the revolt of the reading public, the, um, the, the voice of the reader returned directly to the um, public commentator, whether that's a journalist or an opinion writer or whatever it is. Now, psychologically, that's just a huge change from um, earlier generations of public commentators. It's probably a very positive one, but it's had to take, it's required a real mental mind shift in the voice of, in, in the head of the writers um, that now they they're not just speaking to a blank and un a, a public that can't speak back. Now the public is speaking back. This was so often I, commented in in the early days of social media, but um, uh, I, I and and is less talked about now. But I still think it's got a really significant impact on the way journalism and public intellectual work is conducted. But in in the old days, it was letters to the editor. Yeah, which, which would come back days and days afterwards, of course, because <laughs> yeah, but by that by that stage, the story's got grey hair and is has a Zimmer frame, but but that, that's it. That, that's one part of the dynamic. The other part of the dynamic that I sense, and you, I'm not sure what your take is on this, but. The manner in which commentary is done is increasingly binary. There appears to be no room for nuance in some discussions, and I struggle with that. Yeah, look, I, I think that's right. So there's an increasing polarisation um, of political commentary. Um, in part, there's a little bit of a historical forgetting. There's just more political commentary than there ever was. We have in Australia now two 24-hour news services, television news services, that require just panels and panels of people to do political comment, whereas previous generations there would be maybe one TV show a week that did political comment. There's just more space for opinion journalism. There's more space. There's infinite space on the internet Um uh, there are online-only sources. So in one sense, there's just a lot more opinionated commentary. But on the other side, there's also a um, almost an industrial-sized size change in the way news organisations think of themselves. So in the traditional 20th century um, news organisation, let's say a newspaper, because they were primarily designed to sell ads to, or to, to you know, sell adverti advertisers, um, readers, they had a really strong incentive to bring as many people into the newspaper as they possibly can, as they possibly could, because you want to sell as many readers to advertisers as you, as, as you could, and you'd be able to charge more money, you'd be able to spend that money on journalism, more journalism would attract more readers and so forth. We had a really strong incentive just to get as many readers as possible. 
we've moved away from that because of the internet. We've moved away from that model much more to a subscription model. Most of our journalism now is funded dominantly by subscriptions rather than advertising. And in a subscription-driven model, you want to make sure that your readers are passionate enough to pay reasonably high subscription prices rather than near free prices as you would if you just wanted to get them as many advertisers. So the the, the bean counters at the, at the news organizations don't want as many readers, but they want the readers that they have to be very, very passionate. And I think that has led us into what you can now see as media polarization. You now have an environment where... Um, you want to drag in passionate readers who are willing to pay high subscription prices rather than um, uh, sort of go for the middle ground, sort of go for the, the balance or, or, or even the blander type of journalism. I think that accounts for a big social change in the tone of journalism today, that you're just trying to fight for the most passionate readers. You're trying to scream above the fray. I don't blame the news industry for focusing on that because I think that's where the economics of news leads them to. But I think it's a significant explanation of what we see today. Now, there are problems with that, of course, one of which is nuance has gone out the door for the most part. Um, and balance sometimes consists of people sitting on a panel yelling at somebody else on the other side of the table. And is the current media uh, environment, in your view, generally conducive to a civil discourse? Um, well, it, it, it depends what you want from it, right? So if you want entertaining people in disputes and um, people having arguments with each other, then the current media environment will give you that in spades. But if you're looking for the more sensible, nuanced, detailed, um, complex uh, analysis, that is widely available to you as well, but you have to hunt for it. You have to look for it in a way that you may not have had to look for it in the past. Um, it's everywhere it's on the internet it's on podcasts you can get all the content you want with all the depth and complexity that you want in a media environment now um than you have ever been before in the with both quantity and quality unparalleled in human history i think it's really important when we have these conversations not to idealize to imagine the past media environment was any more than it was. You might say that the opinion pages of the Fairfax press or the news limited press in the 1990s was not as heated as it was today, but it was also more narrow. It was also the only material you could get. Um, it was also uh, uh, much more limited than anything you can get today because you didn't have access to podcasts you didn't have access to youtube you didn't have access to even some of the early stage digital um media outlets like uh crikey if you remember new matilda if you remember um 
uh, these outlets that sparked up in the early 2000s, late 1990s. Uh, we are just in a much richer environment than we ever have been. And, um, now I, and, and I sort of know this a bit personally when I was doing, so my, my, to go back to my thesis, my thesis was history and it really traced the, um, uh, traced the regulatory changes through government documents, political debates, newspaper articles, and that sort of thing. So I'd find myself comparing the media of the 1930s to the media of the 1970s and 1980s to the media of today. And I, I guarantee and I assure you that you can get much more information now about what is happening than any time in history from if you want highly technical details about regulatory policy, if you want detailed discussions and descriptions about what's happened in cabinet, if you want, um, uh, if you want to hear up-to-date information, if you want to hear long-term information, we are just in a better environment by, by a country mile. But if I'm watching Sky News or the ABC, uh, why is it that I shouldn't be able to get a nuanced panel discussion uh, on certain programs? Uh, why is it that people need to almost uh, replicate a kind of world wrestling entertainment model where you've got the good guys and the bad guys? I well, don't get true. that. Yeah, that, that's true. It's not always to my taste either. Um, and I, I don't enjoy that. But, I mean, Sky News is new, of course. So Sky News was not around in the 1990s, um, so you didn't have that before. Um, the ABC didn't have a 24-hour news network and didn't have its primary panel show, The Drum. It didn't have, um, uh, it didn't have the continuous rolling coverage that it does now. All these things are new. Now, there is a product out there, Sky News, that doesn't necessarily suit your tastes and preferences but on the alternative there's also this podcast there's other podcasts there's enormous amount of political commentary done by every side of politics done by every community group um uh, on the internet easily available to you on your phone at all times i i just think it is extraordinary and we we must not um let that the extraordinary nature of our current environment media environment um escape us now, you and Sinclair Davidson, who I've had a bit to do with over the past uh, good 20-odd years, uh, wrote a book while you were uh, at the Institute of Public Affairs looking at the privatisation of the ABC. Now, can we explore that for a bit? Because it's a controversial issue, particularly given all the funding debates we, that, that have unfolded in the recent past, what was the what was the first uh, underlying thesis of that particular book? Sure. Uh, first, just to clarify, so we wrote that um, uh, while I was at RMIT. So I wrote that as an RMIT employee. But the um, Institute of Public Affairs very kindly launched the book. But it's an RMIT um, uh, product. Okay. But the, under, the underlying thesis of the book is um, that the idea of public broadcasting was an idea designed intended to deal with um, the problem of media scarcity that we had in the 1930s in the case of radio and potentially the 1950s in the case of television. The uh, Public broadcasting is an idea to deal with an assertion 
that the commercial media would not provide media content for um, the population. That those circumstances no longer hold true today. Our challenge right now, as as you know, we've been discussing, if anything is not media scarcity, but it's too much media. It's what um, uh, the former chairman of the press council called the cacophony of media. There's just so much press. There's so much content. Uh, yet, at the same time, we're told that the solution to one is automatically the solution to the other. What we do in the book is we go through the um, individual arguments for public broadcasting historically and today um, and find that in each case, they um, are insufficient to justify the $1 billion we spend on public broadcasting every single year in Australia. Uh, what we think, what we find that is valuable about the ABC, we argue that could be done cheaper through either subsidy, regulation, um, uh, putting out to tender, all sorts of different models. Fundamentally, we just don't think that in the contemporary environment that we have, that a policy designed for the media scarcity of 1930s Australia makes any sense in the media plurality of 2020s Australia. It's an interesting point you make, but um, you're we're operating in a space where the um, the ABC is viewed as a as a national treasure. It's a gem in the crown, and and it does valuable work. How do you decouple that from a, a government government funded uh, model? I mean, what what would you what would you do to it in particular? Well, there's a couple of things there. So um, the first point I'll make is absolutely the ABC um, polls very well. Um, uh, there's a couple of points that you could make to that, but but the the first one is if you ask if you poll anybody about do they like a television station, they'll probably say yes, I like a television station. More fundamentally, of course, our argument is not dependent on the ABC being popular. Our argument is that the ABC is bad public policy. I think if we start treating the ABC not as a um, not as a mystical part of the Australian national way, but we actually treat it like what it is, which is a very large public policy intervention, and judge it on those grounds as we would judge any other public policy intervention, I don't think it comes up as well. I don't think it performs as well as you might want it to. Um, so in that sense, the fact that it's popular is, is not really relevant for us. Our book is to assess the ABC as a public policy intervention, to judge it on the grounds that are stated that it is for, and to see if there are alternative mechanisms that we might achieve those goals or whether those goals are justified at all. Well, I think, does your analysis go back to what Adam Smith argued in The Wealth of Nations, which is there are uh, there are three purposes for government. One is to defend the country. Another is to defend citizens against themselves. Yeah. And the other one is to do things the private sector does not want to do or is incapable of doing, i.e. provision of you know, infrastructure, etc. 
Um, so your underlying thesis is, given that there's a lot of private sector providers that provide media, um, um, provide coverage, news, uh, sports coverage, um, comedy, etc., that using a using an economic rationale, not necessarily a not necessarily a cultural one, that the ABC now fails to clear the hurdle of that third category, which is stuff the private sector won't or cannot do. That's right. Um, I think that every public policy initiative has to be assessed on on economic grounds as well as uh, social and cultural ones. But the economic analysis allows you to um, look at alternatives. So it may well be that Australian culture will not thrive without a public broadcaster. Or it may not, sorry, I'll, I'll rephrase. It may well be that Australian culture will not thrive without government intervention. Now, I'm sceptical about that, but let's let's grant that for argument's sake. It does not immediately imply that you need a $1 billion television or radio network to um, achieve those public policy goals. The economic lens allows you to judge alternative policies against each other to meet the goals that you have set. And as we work through the individual rationales for public broadcasting, um, we just are unconvinced that that is the most efficient or even the most desirable way to achieve those goals. For example, I'll give you a really practical one. Um, The ABC has done incredibly well and it did incredibly well during the bushfires. And it did incredibly well primarily because it became the dominant emergency management service um, to afflicted communities. And, and we all, and that was a very stressful time, easy to forget in the middle of COVID, but it was all very stressful time. Um, that does not imply that they need to have a massive network of 24-hour television stations, multiple television stations, multiple radio stations, Emergency management is a service that can and should be provided by the government. It is not the case that you need a billion-dollar TV station that commissions comedy um, uh, and does reruns of BBC television shows to achieve that public policy goal. Now, there are other things the ABC does, and so we work through each of those and argue that the ABC's services that are needed could be provided cheaper either by the public uh, either by the private sector or by regulation or by um, putting those services out to tender that what we, when, we, when you look at the ABC today if we were to pick something off I mean we've got uh, the digital channels what would you do with the digital channels of the ABC the stuff that I view the stuff that streams material ad nauseum if you've got your computer on? Well, it really depends on what your goal is. So um, if your goal is just to uh, streamline the ABC, if your goal is to rationalise the ABC, then it makes sense to me that you would um, uh, shut down the TV networks and use use iView itself. Now, but I don't actually want to be in charge of making those decisions. I want the um, ABC to be responsive to market demand, to identify the opportunities 
itself to rationalize its services, to make better services, to do what it does better according to what its audience want, not according to what political commentators or the Department of Communications or a team of bureaucrats want it to do. And one of the advantages of exposing media to the marketplace is that they're able to respond to what consumers, the audience, actually wants to hear and see and listen to. Is there any... You'd prefer this to be a, a, a proper policy review of, of what aspects of the ABC should be funded by government the way it is and what other what aspects should be you know, perhaps contracted out. That's right. So the ABC's, yeah, the ABC's gone through a group of reviews historically, um, uh, uh, most recently under the Howard government, under the um, Rudd-Gillard government, there was also a review into its digital services. But I think now is the time to deeply think about what the ABC is for. Is the ABC necessary at all? Um, the ABC has historically resisted these reviews. Uh, but can you imagine a better time in the middle of the biggest change in the media landscape that we have had in at least a century to maybe rethink whether public broadcasting is suitable for the environment that we are in. Um, I think that there needs to be a root and branch assessment, not of what the ABC does, but whether we need public broadcasting at all. I think um, a, the fact that governments have not done so is a dereliction of their duties to the Australian taxpayer and to the Australian media consumer, uh, given the changes that we've seen in recent years. Let me put it. Let me put a contrary argument to you because I know there'll be people listening to this who are, who either work for the ABC or who've also um, uh, or who literally depend on. The ABC and are great supporters of the ABC. Why is it that you come to the conclusion, in a sense, that the public policy outcome, uh, it's a bad public policy outcome to have a public broadcaster in, in, in its current form? Surely there's value to be obtained from it. Well, there's always value to be obtained from something, but the question is, can you get it in a better way? Does it have unintended consequences? Is it more expensive than it should be? But to, to the listeners that, that um, and I understand this is a controversial position because as you've said, the ABC is very popular in the Australian community and it does have um, a very strong cultural cachet, even from people who don't, don't watch it or listen to it. Um, but ultimately, we have had the same ABC that we have had since 19... 32. There have been policy changes in, in um, the interim. There was uh, a big review in the 1980s um, where it was changed from a commission to a corporation. Um, but with the exception of a mild and minor review under the Rudd-Gillard government, there has been no root and branch assessment of the purpose and goals of public broadcasting for decades. It is time to do that. 
do we need the same policy framework in 2020 that we needed in 1932? Now, I think I know the answer to that. Obviously, other people will disagree. But the case for rethinking whether we need public broadcasting and what we want it to do in the digital age, I think is rock solid. I think it's very hard to argue against. Now, if the ABC is as popular and effective as everybody says, then it will come out of that stronger rather than weaker. Um, uh, But I, I just don't see an argument against thinking about this policy in 2020. It's an interesting and challenging space. And there is one thing before we conclude, um, you've been most generous with your time and I'm mindful uh, mindful of it uh, as well. There's an article yourself and Sinclair Davidson wrote for Quadrant and there was an interesting paragraph in there that is worth raising in the context of a discussion on the ABC. And it goes something like this. You both... Um, raise the issue of how you can properly and independently report on a government and its affairs when you um, when your funding comes from the one source. Hmm. Can you outline that perspective to to the listeners of the podcast? Absolutely. So um, the ABC is describes itself as Australia's only independent broadcaster. But of course, it's not independent. It's entirely dependent on government funding. Now, I think this places it at a weakness. And I think we've got a long history of seeing interference by governments with the public broadcaster um, uh, because they have this tool of the triennial funding rounds that they can use to threaten and control a broadcaster from um, if it's upsetting the government in 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 any way we've seen that activity from both sides of um of politics and i think that's bad i i don't think that's welcome i don't think we should be happy about political interference with um broadcasting or news media organizations in fact i think the abc made a mistake uh many many decades ago when it quite willingly um moved away from the um, license fee model that still dominates, still is the dominant way that the BBC is funded um, in the UK, because the license fee actually protects uh, to a much larger degree the BBC from political interference than the triennial funding structure protects the ABC. The license fee comes from the consumers themselves rather than from the um, treasurer's pocketbook. Uh, now, of course, the license fee has some serious issues as well. It's obviously absurd, and it's uh, and it's always been a bit of a fantasy. Um, but it reminds us that political interference is a live risk when you have your entire funding depending on one organisation, which is a government. And that government is full of politicians, the politicians that you report on. My view has always been um, and I, uh, that a commercial broadcaster has much more capacity to be independent because if one advertiser is unhappy, then that advertiser can always be ditched and you can find new advertisers. That's a really welcome feature of commercial private sector broadcasting. 
that um, uh, that that is just not available to the ABC because if the government's unhappy, there's nothing they can do. They just won't get their their funds. So the uh, the model, um, in your view and in Sinclair's view, obviously, is that the government funding. Um, does compromise independence. We've seen some of that emerge in analysis over the past week, haven't we, with the the, the cutbacks and the the the, you know, the layoffs the ABC has been making in recent times. No, that's um, that's absolutely right. And if you think about, um, it's no secret that the government is not happy with the ABC. Um, and no doubt that we've got all sorts of really complex budgeting issues. But it's also the case that you know, no one in the government is that disappointed to be cutting funding to the ABC because no one in the government is particularly happy with the ABC's coverage historically of the government. The government believes that the ABC is biased to the left. So they're pretty happy to, to I mean, it's not a full cutting, but it's a, um, it's a failure to increase funding to CPI levels, but nonetheless, um, it's viewed by the ABC as a funding cut. That, to my mind, reveals the weakness in public broadcasting, not the strength. Now, is there a hybrid model um, where the government funds up to a point and the ABC is able to advertise? Look, there's lots of interesting ways that you could fund. Um, I, I, it depends what you want to do, but if we're thinking about public interest I'm just journalism, testing your pain <laughs> threshold, Chris. No, I understand. If you're interested in public interest journalism, <laughs> a, a model that I um, uh, would... Uh, I'm interested in, I think it's got some issues, but I'm interested in is um, having tax deductible um, uh, journalism organisations in the same way that social science research and centres and charities and universities um, uh, can accept donations and offer tax deductibility for those donations. Um, There's been some conversations in policy circles about doing the same thing for public interest journalism. Now, I think there are some policy issues with that, but if we if we feel that we need to sponsor journalism in some way, then I think that strikes a um, a good balance between exposing um, uh, media organisations to the demands of their audience, while at the same time giving them a little bit of a prop up against the um, the, the the brutal shockwaves of the marketplace. The one thing with the donation model, which I'll raise uh, with you now, is that it would depend on you being able to get uh, what we would both know to be deductible gift recipient status. Oh yes, yeah. so so on oh, that on that model, you would that would be a policy decision by the government. So the policy decision would be to make journalism entities a one of the criteria by which you could be deductible gift recipient. It does. It does create the problem of deciding who's a real journalist or what's a real public interest journalism organisation. So I I do have some um, concerns with that, but you can imagine a situation in which it could be done well. And if you're the other risk is if someone merits recognition, but they've already got a profile that is somewhat aggressive <laughs> yeah that's true but we, we... It, it could it could lead conceivably to somebody's application being rejected that's true but we deal with this in the charity space already and we deal with it relatively well there are char- charities or um deductible gift recipients on all sides of politics 
Um, of course, the Institute of Public Affairs is, is one of those deductible gift recipients, um, uh, and as is Oxfam. So, so we deal with that relatively well at the moment. Again, there are policy questions there, but by and large, I don't think that's an insurmountable challenge. Uh, before uh, before I leave you, Chris, you've been most generous with your time. Uh, you're doing work in the blockchain space. Uh, are you able to describe the kind of work you're doing at RMIT at the moment in this particular advanced area of, uh, of research? Of course. So, I mean, blockchain is an incredibly exciting technology because it um, challenges so much of the regulatory and policy environment that we have. It's a entirely new way of organizing ourselves as an economy, uh, whether that's from cryptocurrencies, which are a challenge to you know the fiat currencies like the Australian dollar and the US dollar, um, whether it's a new way to organize ourselves into these sort of hybrid corporations. Um, just the sheer exciting number of policy questions, of corporate strategy questions that the, it brings up um, means that it's it's just a really fascinating space to work in. Um, frontier technologies are um, underestimated in the political system by and large. Uh, a lot of people view politics and public policies as static. The policy questions that we debate now are the policy questions we've always been debating around tax and regulation and major projects, controls and all that sort of thing. But new technology has the capacity to really uproot some of our most fundamental preconceptions, whether that's in the media, as, as you know, social media has and as the internet has, whether that's in monetary policy in the case of cryptocurrencies, whether it's in corporate regulations in the case of blockchain, um, uh, blockchain-driven organizations. I think there's just, there's just such a huge range of fascinating public policy and economic questions in this space that, um, uh, in fact, Sinclair um, is also working on that. And um, we've got a big team of economists and lawyers and accountants and regulatory policy analysts looking at this at the moment. So you can't really get away from your PhD supervisor, can you? No, no, and I never will, unfortunately. Um, so he's just as disappointed as I am with that fact. But <laughs> Look, Chris, um, where can people get the book that yourself and Sinclair wrote on the ABC if they wanted to look at it? Uh, so all good bookstores, of course, but um, uh, if you Google Against Public Broadcasting, it's published by Connor Court Publishing, or if you just look for if you Google my name, Chris Berg, um, and you can go to my website and I've got all my books uh, available there and links to how they can be purchased. Okay, Chris, look, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an extra special uh, uh, discussion on the media and it's been fascinating to have your company and to, to poke around some contentious and controversial issues. So thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. Absolute pleasure.